Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to the Hossadathon, the podcast that goes through the index of films of one of the world's greatest animation directors, Mamoru Hosoda. I'm Michael Leader. And I'm Steph Watts, and we've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm hitting every branch on the way down. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Mamoru Hosoda. Jake, Steph, welcome back. So great to be recording with you again in our Hossadathon mini-series. We've made it to the film that we talked about at the beginning of the series, which was your first introduction to Hossada, Jake. Yeah, yeah. this this film kind of holds a special place in my heart because this is kind of a moment where I'm uh, kind of diversifying and getting into uh, anime beyond Studio Ghibli. So we had started, I think, maybe Series 1 or Series 2 or just finished one of them. And then it was the London Film Festival. Um, and there also happened to be a screening of Your Name in London around the same time as well. And so I went straight off of what we were doing, straight into Your Name and Mirai. And the Mirai screening was at the Waterloo IMAX, which is one of the biggest screens in the UK. Uh, so, yeah, it was a kind of a, a very big introduction to this filmmaker and very happy to be revisiting it wow i should have saved that for the context how ghibli attack <laughs> the production history of the very podcast factors into yeah. <laughs> the story behind this film and Steph, i think you... that's uh, what hostada talks about in in uh, his interviews as well he's like yeah the, these guys they were doing this podcast <laughs> and steph did you see it around then as well yeah i saw it at the prince charles cinema uh, so slightly smaller screen than, than Jake saw it at. Um, I think this was the first Hossida film that I saw as well. So yeah, really kind of big one for both of us, I guess. I think also around that time, I saw Your Name in the IMAX, which was an insane experience. Oh, just yeah, yeah. That, that screen is just so fun for just big dramatic movies. <laughs> so good. Actually, it'd be great to see Belle uh, when that comes out. Uh, on the big IMAX as well. Hopefully it ends up with and, a screening there. And, well, you know that Studio Chizu are putting out all their films in 4DX 
So yes. surely we'll have Mirai in 4DX, Bell in 4DX. That'll be something to see. Oh, yeah. Day. I want to ride that sound whale. <laughs> I really want to feel it. <laughs> feel the bass. <laughs> but yes, let's kick off. We're going to be talking about Mirai, also called Mirai of the Future today. And Steph, could you please kick us off with a bit of synopsis? Absolutely. The birth of a sibling is a joyous time for many, but not for Kun. Four years old and spoilt rotten, he sees the arrival of baby sister Mirai as competition for his parents' love. That is, until magical encounters with an older Mirai and family past, present and future send the siblings on an intimate journey through time and space to confront Kun's uncertain feelings and prepare him to become the big brother he needs to be. So, Michael, we're looking into the magical future in Mirai, but what about the past in the context? (laughs) How did this film get made? Oh, I love that segue, Steph. So, as we've gone through the series, we've seen this development of Hosoda as a storyteller, drawing inspiration from his family life as he met his fiancée, got married to her, as they had kids, as people around him were having kids. So this is another step along that journey. I've got the novelization of Mirai, and in the preface that's in that book, he writes the following. Mirai is a film inspired by my own children, especially the reaction of my oldest boy when his new baby sister arrived. It was both adorable and fascinating the way he cried as if she were stealing our love, and I wanted to turn it into a movie. And he then went on to elaborate on that a little bit, telling Nick Bradshaw at Sight and Sound, I was really interested to observe how he would react when he first saw the baby. Would he recognise her as his sibling? How would he accept this new existence, which wasn't here before? Uh, the scene with the train, there's a bit we'll talk about, I'm sure, coming on, where the, the, the brother hits the new baby with one of his toy trains actually happened. I sort of said, that scene is real. My son did that. It wasn't a random tantrum. He was angry. He'd lost his attention. He thought he'd lost his love. His entire world was shattered because of this new creature. As a filmmaker, I thought there are no other movies like this about the point of view of a four-year-old boy with a newborn. I wasn't sure if it could be an entertaining film, but I thought it was quite important socially to make a movie from that new point of view. So he has this big, ambitious, emotional theme, whether it's going to be entertaining or not. And this time, um, after the action-adventure antics of Boy and the Beast, he returns to more of the realm of wolf children, where it's more about these observational, emotional journeys and these little textural details. So in the production, the pre-production, uh, that seeped through. He brought his actual kids into the Studio Chizu offices so the animators could really study them and have that reflected in the animation and the designs of the characters in the film. And another nice touch uh, was bringing in an actual architect called Makoto Tenjiri to design the family home that's going to be the key location of the film. Of course, the father is an architect and has designed their own house. And for those keeping score, that's yet another example of Hosoda bringing in a designer from the outside world, not from animation to contribute to the film. And in terms of animation itself, um, this one features probably the most CGI that we've seen in a Hosoda movie until now. And in and in interviews on the promotional circuit, he talks about that a lot, how it's the inevitable direction that animation is going into more CG, less hand-drawn. Mirai itself has lots of 
painted backgrounds, really beautiful backgrounds, and that he had a team of 20 artists um, making those, veteran artists. But he predicted that apart from Miyazaki's How Do You Live, Mirai will be one of the last films to be made in that way, as those artists are a dying breed and the art form was being made obsolete. So he wanted to show off that old-fashioned but beautiful style of art in this movie. And Mirai, when it's finished, premieres in director's fortnight at Cannes 2018. It's where I, I saw it, which is a big deal for an animated film, particularly Japanese animation even today. Um, if a film premieres in Cannes, it's, um, that's you know quite a renowned film festival to premiere in. But that was the year that um, Hirokazu Koreeda took home the Palme d'Or, the big prize at Cannes for shoplifters. And it's fun that Hosoda you know, mentions in interviews around this time that he's pretty good friends with Hirokazu Koreeda, a, a filmmaker I really love. We've mentioned before on him before on this podcast as well. Um, in fact, Hosoda told Carlos Aguilar of Cartoon Brew um, that once Koreeda saw Mirai, he said that uh, if he ever made an animated film, it would probably look like Mirai. And I think if you watch their films, Shoplifters, Still Walking, Nobody Knows, um, you can see that there's a lot of shared thematic interests and concerns, particularly looking at the Japanese family unit. And Hosoda calls Koreeda a comrade in arms. Mm -hmm. um, it's released in Japan, July 2018. Opening weekend came number two in the box office. Quite a drop-off after... Boy and the Beast, of course, that was quite a big hit, but also pitching to more of a uh, an action adventure family crowd. This one had a bit more of a um, a high concept premise to it. It ended the year number ten um, in the in the tallies at the Japanese box office for Japanese produced films, and even lower if you count international films in the mix. So not a huge box office hit, but of course, playing at film festivals around the world, having some renown. You know, I love to play the game, the box office game. So if you took in Hollywood films into account, there was a, a Hollywood film that grossed a little bit more than Mirai and a little bit less than Mirai. And Steph, Jake, I want you to guess these based on two, <laughs> uh, to a clue up for each. So the film that grossed slightly more than Mirai was a CG animation from 2018. You can ask for more than that if you um... like. But I'd like to see you bullseye this with one guess. A CG animation from 2018. Oh, gosh. What came out in 2018? Um, I, is, it, is, it, is it good? <laughs> uh, if you hadn't seen many films before, you might think it's good. Oh, no. Oh. <laughs> Oh gosh. Um and is it from a beloved CG studio? Um I want to say beloved. Oh gosh, even worse. Um <laughs> I'm thinking in the illumination worlds is it Sing? It's not Sing. Okay. Sing is very beloved for 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 certain for certain young audiences. Certain 5-year-olds. <laughs> but uh, you, you, if if you hadn't seen many films, you might you might think that this that this is giving off a vibe. Yeah. Boss Baby. Yes. <laughs> oh, God, of course. <laughs> so Boss Baby outgrossed Mirai, and the film that was just below it at the box office was a spectacular film um, from a filmmaker we mention very often on this podcast. A spectacular. Um, oh, gosh. There's something in the way that you said spectacular well, no, that uh, makes me feel like there was... 
It was it was a return to spectacular cinema. Oh, is it Ready Player One? It was Ready Player One. Oh. <laughs> so it's not Boss a spectacular AB. film. <laughs> hey, it's got uh, it's got it's got the, the Iron bike. Giant being a a gun, which was as we all know from the Iron Giant, is exactly the thing the Iron Giant likes to be. <laughs> oh dearie me. Okay, awards wise, it keeps. Hosoda's streak going at the Japanese Academy Awards won Best Animated Feature and this is the historic thing it was nominated for an Oscar for Best Animated Feature the first Japanese film not produced by Studio Ghibli to do so and this is 2019 you know the the ceremony happens in 2019 looking back at the year of 2018 so that's the year that Bao won Best Animated Short and listeners if you haven't I'd recommend going back to our episode with director Domi Shi where she talks about Bao, but also talks about her encounter with Hosoda, one of her favourite filmmakers, at um, the nominee's luncheon. That's very sweet. Um, but in the animated feature category, the nominations were Ralph Breaks the Internet, <laughs> Incredibles 2, Isle of Dogs, Mirai, and the winner. And I'm going to put you two on, on the spot again, <laughs> Stephen Jake. Any guesses what won that year? Oh, gosh. Um... 2019 that's not even that long ago oh man the sequel's due out this year jake the sequel i didn't mention it earlier it's not it's not sing again is it <laughs> oh no 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 it's later in the year and the sequel is part one of, of hopefully potentially two. Oh, spider-verse yes yeah. that, that's a that's a shout yeah that's a good win a good yeah. win that year i think <laughs> but uh we, i guess we have to ask was mirai a winner for the three of us and uh dive into the review section hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I think something that's a little bit different about this one compared to the other Hosoda films that we've watched is that we begin with credits. So normally we'll have Hosoda's film will end, we'll have closing credits and kind of a nice picture slideshow of all the events that have happened in the film. Uh, 
But with this one, we're getting all these kind of events that have happened before the film even takes place. So we're watching uh, Kun's parents meeting, uh, get in their house and uh, the mum being pregnant with Kun. And then we're kind of caught up to the where the story is starting. Was that like weird for you, Jake? Was that exciting? <laughs> um, I think it immediately tells you like at what stakes this film is at. Um, like it, it is more grounded um, and it is, well, it's not kitchen sink type stuff, but you know, it's kind of giving you the, the, the level to be treating this compared to like the intro to Bell, which we might get into or some of its other films where you've got to introduce the big concept first. And that, that's kind of him laying the groundwork to say that, Hey, the big concept here isn't maybe as important as it has been in the previous ones. We don't need to establish the rules of the game as much. Uh, the important thing here is the characters. And I think you get invested in that couple pretty quickly. Uh, and it's got, you have that satisfying grand designs type thing of seeing the house before and then the house afterwards. And you think, oh, it's a very cool house. Um, and he's, he's, he sets, um, he's kind of set a template for his opening credits as well, which he replicates in Bell. Uh, with the title card, which is this big, bold, white, sans-serif uh, logo in Japanese, and then the kind of wide, thin English title underneath. Um, not really that important, but I just noticed it this time, having watched Bell a couple of times recently as well, that he's clearly settled on his graphic design. Graphic design is his passion. <laughs> but as you say this really sets up that low stakes world we're going to be in this house with this family um and we do have that early sequence of scenes before the concept comes in and what what struck you about that i suppose coming off the back of boy and the beast which really goes into the fantasy world very quickly world of action and adventure this is a a bit different to all that yeah and it's the I think it, you can see it in the in the details of the house and the details of the character animation. Um, like the thing that I love most about this film, there's a lot that I really like about it. It's just the way that Kum moves around the house and the way that his waddle or the way that he, he has to kind of climb down the up and down the stairs and everything's such a massive effort, or the way that he sleeps with his bum in the air. Um, <laughs> uh, all of these little things are so beautifully done and beautifully observed. And that extends to the house as well, just like behind the dad. Like he's got his Hadid and his Bauhaus books. And like it's it's so uh like we when we think of like, oh it's so like intricately detailed and we uh it's like it's hyper real. You might think of like uh, a Shinkai film or something, and that's what those films often kind of get highlighted for. But this is doing it on a on a low stakes scale to make you really feel the life that is in this home. It's really fun as well because I would want to live in that house. Like every time <laughs> I watch this, I just get pure kind of house envy. Um, but I think it it kind of questions whether it's a good house for small children. <laughs> um, I, there's a really good scene right at the start where like Kuhn is waiting for his parents to come home with the new baby and his grandma's looking after him. Um, and I think she says something like, my daughter chose 
a strange house to live in or something but she delivers the lines in kind of separate cuts as she's in different sections of the house and it's like the house is so disconnected and set up in these kind of separate rooms yeah so it's like awkward but it's very beautiful <laughs> yeah and it's it's it uses that space really well the divi- having the tree at the center of the house is does become relevant later when we see that there is this sci-fi concept of a family tree that's an index that, that, that he returns to but the, the space between there's the kids playroom and then the adults room does provide that distance as well that he comes to we, we, we can talk about this later but when the dad's trying to work at home and the kids are playing there is that sense that there's distance within a world that Hosta just talked about before but is returning to here which is like urban living rather than suburban or rural living in something like wolf children this is like how do you raise a family in this tiny house that's been built in between in the yard between two other houses um it is it is complex complicated but it's real and there are lots of those real details in here i remember when i saw this so seeing this in 2018 was when my partner was pregnant with the son we have now and the son we have is now the age that kun is pretty much or almost so seeing it from those two different perspectives is really interesting because early on they say that the mum can't take her full maternity leave because one of her colleagues has also taken maternity leave so she has to go back to work brutal um <laughs> but that those, those sorts of details show that he's really thinking about contemporary living and family so there is in the framing of it all it feels very lived in and you know, well healed in terms of um the setup but then as you say jake so well observed in terms of the animation um mm. The way that uh, Kuhn walks up and down those stairs between the modular parts of the house, um, one foot at a time, yeah. very well observed. So you, maybe, apparently his kids didn't like being taken into the office and being scrutinised <laughs> by animators, but it's all for the good of the film. Although I do think in some of the more expressionistic, expressive moments of the animation, this is a this is very much like May from Totoro in terms of the big wide mm. mouth and the fact that, the, that her teeth are bigger than her eyes <laughs> or his teeth are bigger than his eyes in this case um really interesting um yeah i i think the the just one more thing on the house i think what's amazing is how it doesn't feel like the film is trapped by it even though it, it seems to be not just have the the four walls but like the roof on top seem it's like more like a like a cage just with that mm. that gap of the garden in the middle but the way that um the camera or the virtual camera will kind of do a diagonal slide up and down the house and frame different scenes all on different planes of the house all within the uh, individual cuts so it just like that momentum through it made me think like between the way it moves like that and between this this the kind of block like spaces of the rooms like that upstairs lounge kitchen area the middle garden bit the downstairs playroom these are like blocks and it's it's quite like comic like in that respect like it's all kind of in grids and lines even the way it moves between these things um Uh, oh yeah i I absolutely love that house um Mm. but just thinking of the the, as you said michael the the teeth and the eyes um something that he does here which we've we've talked about before is like his his skill is as a silent filmmaker and a and a montage maker as well he's a great editor um or he uses great editing um 
I'm not sure who his editor is, um, but I suppose in animation, editing is kind of mm. done beforehand in a way as well. Um, but with this, just it, it's so much in the eye contact. It's so much in the gestures. Like when he first meets Mirai, even though we, he kind of gets annoyed by her eventually, you, you can still see that kind of love instantly in the way that he looks at her like it's, it's like a like a precious gem or something the way that his eyes light up and widen and then gradually mirai grows to have that same look as well and it's so much just through the way that he looks at other people whether they are these kind of visions from the past or future uh it's so so good uh but it's not just in in the eye contact stuff. It's this slapstick that we keep coming back to as well, and the way that he repeats sequences over and over again uh, to kind of add power to them, add comic value to them as well. Uh, and so that's whether that's riding the bike or putting the dolls away. You've either got something that can be repeated over and over again, and the momentum that comes with that, or the really dragged out humor of putting the dolls away. And we see we see this kind of, this thing over and over again in each of his films, and I know Mirai gets complicated, but it's not as complicated as his previous ones. And it's the one that I feel like maybe along with Wolf Children, you could get away with watching silently or watching without the subtitles on. I feel like he translates the gist of it so well. And there's also just something really hilarious about watching a small child who's just had like a terrible tantrum for bad reasons, just absolutely stack it and fall over oh, yeah. on their face. So <laughs> yeah. But I suppose what, I, what he was saying in what you mentioned in the context, Michael, about having to make a film from the point of view of a four-year-old and that not being done before, from a writing and directing standpoint, that means you've got to think of how a character of that age actually communicates. And a lot of the time it won't be necessarily what makes sense or they might not be able to verbalise or have an actual normal human conversation. So he's probably having to push himself further to think, right, what can the animation do for me here? What can I do through the blocking of this, through the just the movement of it, rather than what people are saying? Mm-hmm. But he's also, and this is what, what I mean about how it's deeply felt as well, it's such a good um, parental movie. Mm. This came out not long after the Jason Reitman film Tully, which mm. um, uh, had many flaws to it, but one thing it did do really well was capture just how the horror of being a parent, <laughs> <laughs> the mind-numbing slog. Um, I think this film captures that as well. The idea of, come on, we're going out now, and then the child gets that box full of train tracks and just tips it all over the floor. <laughs> the little little details like that, you know that he's lived with this. And I suppose this is another question for, for you two, because... He's always talked about drawing from his own perspectives and his own lived experience, but it's very. This is the first time we've seen someone who, you know, an architect is not a million miles away from being an animator. He's pre- he did go independent in the time when he had kids. He formed his own studio, so probably did try and work from home every now now and then with his with his own kids. So it's this Hosoda we're seeing here, and in, in the dad in some of the house husband lols that we have in this film. What do you think? Oh, I read that as 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I thought that, yeah, the work from homeness of it all uh, had a lot more impact now than absolutely. <laughs> uh, in 2018, watching this for the first time. And I mean, I don't have I don't have a kid and I don't have a kid that is obsessed with trains like some of us do. So maybe didn't have that connection. Um, 
but I have a yapping dog. Uh, and so I got a little bit out of that. And the particular bit where uh, the dad thinks that everything is done and now it's time to open the laptop and work and then just immediately collapses. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, I feel like this is, yeah, this must be Hosoda because he, he does give the dad a hard time as well, even though <laughs> I feel like the dad kind of deserves it because there's a point where the dad is like, what counts as underwear when they're doing laundry? And it's yeah. like, how would you not know that? I don't understand. Like, unless you are literally just going out to work and leaving your partner to do literally everything. Um, so I feel like it's kind of, yeah, it feels like Hosoda I mean, kind he, of he giving getting... himself a bit of a, a nudge and being like, you know you're a bit of an idiot yeah he, you should have done more he gets told off for stuff that i do as well like when it's like no you don't clean up that with this you clean it up with that so <laughs> yeah absolutely been there <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's quite good and interesting that it was um it premiered at the same can as shoplifters which was another look at uh, a family units in very modern day japan that's looking at this as well something we don't really see very often is um the mum being forced back to work the dad having to do you know to pick up the slack and get everything really wrong but i suppose we talked about the parental side quite a bit we've not talked much about mirai the character Mm. um (laughs) who i love as as a design i particularly love the sequence where uh, kun is um using her almost as (laughs) 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 play-doh pulling her cheeks out poking her nose and just stifling his laughter while he's doing that because there is something about babies that makes you want to <laughs> just squeeze them oh, yeah. and mold them so yeah the the eyes of mirai are amazing because he managed to somehow perfectly capture the look that babies have which is this strange vacantness and curiosity at the same time like you have no idea whether they are just totally overwhelmed by everything they're seeing and just adore it or it's too much to take in and they're actually just thinking of a white void of nothing. <laughs> but yeah, she she looks amazing. I <laughs> know, God, when, when Kun covers her in the whale crackers, that's, <laughs> I, uh, I know that my brother would have done similar stuff to me. <laughs> I, I I know we've we've be, we've um been pulled up on this in the past, but there's the bit with the whale crackers where he's lining them up on the side of the desk when his dad's trying to work, mm. and that is absolutely a Totoro nod, right? Mm. Uh, to with the flowers on the desk in there, and you know, I I, I think that's a fine uh, line to draw. But so we've not talked about the big conceit here, the yeah. high concepts. Well, um, and perhaps that's that that's in, like intentional, Michael. That we don't we don't need to talk the high concept conceit as we much might have done beforehand. Um, well, yeah, but I, I suppose I would be happy with a film that's all mm. all in the real world and was just about this thing. But I suppose we are from the four year old's perspective, and he is starting to, I suppose, uh, recalibrate his relationship with everything else in his world and his life. You know, actual characters in his everyday existence like the dog and mirai and his mum and dad but also little stray family stories he's hearing in the periphery um this is called mirai poster being kuna mirai either as a baby or as a, as a teenage girl but that's not the first character we see and neither is the character from the past or the future it's very much a character from the present and it's the family dog <laughs> 
Yeah. Which, and then we get I, a little wolf children ref. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 it baffled me again on on on, on this this viewing. Um, even I thought on a, on a new viewing, maybe I'd understand it more. But it is a bit strange. Yeah, it's very much set up as being the past and the future and the family network. And but now here's the human that is the anthropomorphized dog. <laughs> oh no! But I love that it's the dog because to me that is like look comparing this to shoplifters shoplifters is very much how about family being a word that you choose your own definition of uh, and that's something that a lot of films have been exploring in the last few years and by first presenting the dog as being part of this whole conceit it's saying that that is like kun's family are these these people and these creatures that surround him like they they don't have to be blood related they don't even have to be the same species uh and so i i but i was with you the first time round, <laughs> and i thought I, it's a bit jarring to start off with particularly that he's anthropomorphized but yeah. um I, i'm i'm fine with it now because I, I think it, it allows the film's message to spread a bit further uh than kind of traditional notions of family yeah i think story-wise it kind of makes sense because the dog has been in Kun's position before, mm. even though he's a dog. Um, like, yeah, he knows what it's like to have to share, like, the love of their parents. Um, and if he'd been introduced to Mirai, like, straight off the bat, I think it would have been more difficult to to get those characters understanding each other mm. immediately. Like, he kind of needs that understanding of how he's impacted somebody who's come before him um yeah yeah not entirely sure about him like stealing his tail and turning into a mini dog and flying around but (laughs) i think yeah i think it is fun i think maybe did they they were doing like a a jungle book robin hood with some of the cells left over from wolf children i'm just like right where can we get a few seconds we'll just trace over this and get it back but i I love that you might i think you were maybe getting to this earlier michael about the fact that this family tree stuff all happens in this this space between the two key rooms uh like there is kun's playroom and then there is the grown-up section of the house and like this is his transitional moment this is where he meets these people is between these two areas and so like this is where he grows as a person and, and like he do, it's not a coming of age thing because he's, he's four but he comes to appreciate the literal links that bring together what makes his family yeah i suppose and this is a, a minor frustration I have with this film is that uh, I, I think that it becomes very episodic after this mm. with all of these characters, and I I feel that with that one maybe that's almost you know the, the one with the dog maybe the end point is the idea of him having a minor tantrum where he pretends to be the dog and Hossard is trying to decode that what if, what could that mean in Kun's mind and he's, because he's having a moment of communion with the dog uh, who in his mind is the prince of the house. And then we see a succession of other characters at various stages of their lives. And it takes us outside of the house the further down we go. And I think the further further we go as well, it gets us further away from the actual, not here and now, but there and then of the experience of the new baby. And But the next one, of course, is Mirai, title character, Mm. turning up. And I'd forgotten, actually, between the, the previous viewing and this one, because, of course, the poster is Mirai in a beautiful inversion of The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, Mirai f- almost falling through the sky, reaching out to Kun. Um, but 
I, I forget that the reason why she's come back is to put the statues away because she's worried that <laughs> it's going to be many years until she's going to get married. That's the reason that she's come back to see him. Or the reason that he's heard his mum say that and sees that his dad's forgotten and this is how in his mind he's communicating it is Mirai in the future is going to be quite upset about I th- the, the statues being out. And I get, I think this is him getting too in the weeds of it. You need a, a Clements Posey a la Tenet to come in and say don't try to understand it, just feel it. Uh, <laughs> and I, I got a bit bogged down as to the why all of this needed to happen. And I, I like the idea that he can just imagine these people in mm-hmm. this, because uh, a kid does that. Like you just come up with this stuff and you don't need to make up rules that can translate to an adult audience. Like this kid can just imagine these people coming into the house and they can just have conversations. That's fine. But he loves his high concept stuff. And if we if we didn't have the high concept stuff, we wouldn't get gonna be brave enough to say it. The the sexiest character in all of Hosseda's films. Oh, great grandpa. Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And that that is a that's a it's it's this is the thing. As you say, Jake, if I was just going along and feeling it, really beautiful sequence. Yeah. Some of those soaring aerial shots as they're like when, it, when it transitions. Oh yeah, when it transitions from horse to motorbike, that yeah. stuff is magical. But again, I'm like, I guess again, residual memories of the great grandpa who died the previous year, hmm. and th- things like that. It's it doesn't. This is the the, the it's the nexus point between is this a film for kids where we're just meant to go along with it, or is it a film more for adults with the deeply felt kind of the deeply you know the 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 um, well observed parental point of view mm. but yeah sexiest character such a romantic story behind him as well yeah he, he's lovely and like i think although the the film does get kind of bogged down in having to give you all of this information to set up the last 20 minutes or so which is a great finale um i love that in these moments he he breaks up the style of the film not in a like hugely abstract way but you can see that he wants to give the great grandpa his more kind of sepia-toned postcard from the war, browns and greens, that just looks so romantic. But then with the mum, like we mentioned Totoro already, that is absolutely full of those kind of lovely, rainy greys, greens and blues that just fill up all of my neighbor Totoro, um, particularly when he's just kind of sloshing around in the rain it's it's amazing and like the interactions with her when they're storming around the house making everything messy everything's more fun when it's messy everything tastes better when it's messy Uh, all of those interactions are brilliant and it's the first seed of a a child understanding that their their parents are humans as well and that they have lived lives and that actually they're not that dissimilar to me even though i'm four and they're 30 or so i'm surprised you think it got like bogged down i think this is such a a kind of free and flowing story and like i never feel that in this film i never feel like it's over explaining um i think you know you go from kun's mum showing him photos of like his family and herself as a young child and then obviously that kind of manifests in him like going to visit those people and it's i don't know yeah it's kind of like melancholy it's like the only way you could go and meet those people at that time is through this kind of magical sci-fi world um 
And I really like that. I really like that kind of like, I guess, kind of Wizard of Oz type vibe where, you know, it could all just be in his imagination or it could like, he could literally be being transported away by this kind of tree in the back garden. And I think, I mean, yeah, I, the the scene with the, the kind of great grandpa maybe like goes on a little bit long, but I, I really like it. And I think like that scene with him and his mum is like hands down the best scene in the film. And I think just because it's so kind of, it's like mildly unsettling, like and like uncanny, I guess mm. that you know he's meeting his mom in this time, and she's so much like him, and as she's kind of remembering um as well, like herself, kind of how she used to be at that age, I feel like it kind of brings them a little bit closer together as they kind yeah. of understand each other. I think actually maybe I've used the used the wrong phrasing there to say bogged down, but it's more like you get it's too much information in too short a time. Um, and actually if, if the film had an extra 10 minutes to like give it a slightly slower rhythm through that midsection where you can really sit in all of the sequences for the same amount of time that you do with the great granddad one, mm-hmm. um, because it, it just feels slightly unbalanced between the world of the house and these like alternate worlds. Um, but I think compared to his previous films where we've had these alternate worlds and these like high concept ideas and we've said that they don't exactly gel with the main story because this is coming from a toddler's point of view and it could be just an imagine like in the imagination or a dream it makes you forgive it a lot more like where it doesn't quite link because like, anything goes when it's a kid i do think it gels really well in the end we need to talk about this network, the index in the end. <laughs> but I suppose for me, I keep going back to that, um, the quote from Satoko Okadera, the screenwriter who he used to work with, who said that he'd always just come with ideas. He's always an ideas first filmmaker and would just keep piling on ideas with every draft he writes. And this is one where we have five encounters that he has in a 96 minute film that's also trying to do these other things. And the encounters are the dog, Mirai, his mum, the great-granddad, and himself as a teenager. And as well as then this whole end sequence, which actually lands the theme, the grand theme does land in more of a direction of something like Boy and the Beast. After being more about maybe a reprise of some of the ideas from maybe Wolf Children or Summer Wars, it ends with Boy and the Beast, which is the idea of all the people through your life, past, present, future, that may have an impact on yourself and your identity and who you are. And it has this whole sequence where it is, do you know who you are, Kun, aged four? Um, and the sense of identity and where he sits within the family. Um, and I suppose, is it successful, that whole like final train nightmare sequence with the bullet train and then being saved by Mirai of the Future and going through the interstellar uh, type network of connections through your life? How, does, how did that land for you, Steph? Yeah, well, I was reading in the um, like production notes of the the DVD that originally it was just going to be these like five small stories. And I think they were just going to come back to the bike scene at the end. So that whole big train scene wasn't even mm-hmm. like going to be in the film um, until like a little bit later. And I'm really glad that they did include it because I think Kun's like relationship to other people like makes who he is as a person. And it's kind of, it's really cool to see that that moment that like small children realize that the world doesn't revolve around them and that there's stuff outside of them. Um, and yeah, I guess that thing with like babies where if you cover their eyes, they, they think that 
nothing is there anymore. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's like a really kind of important pivotal scene to the whole story and it like ties the whole film together so well. Um, and I really love that kind of family tree index scene where they're flying through this family tree, this kind of white space that Hossard has used before for kind of the digital landscape, but instead it's all kind of green um, and it's, yeah, showing how like all his family is tied together and how all of those stories that have been kind of passed around earlier in the film really like make up who he is and who Mirai will become also. Um, I do think that the monster train is kind of ugly though. That's my one gripe with this film is it's very weird looking. <laughs> I, I like it. It's quite strange and unsettling. Um, and I, in a film that's all very kind of soft and smooth and the house is so so shiny and sleek this hairy train is 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 very scary um but i I love that i on a on a kind of small scale setting the grand finale of the thing inside this train station like helps kun become who he's going to be but also it validates his his current self too because it's a train station and he loves trains (laughs) Like this, like this is showing like who you are now is really important too, and like everything you love now is like equally has a value. Um, controversially, I don't love the index space because I think it feels too unnatural. I think it feels too techy. Um, like I think all the other dream sequences have transitioned from the house to the past so elegantly and so naturally. Um, like you bet, like it. The, the transition kind of happens in the background and it feels very organic um, and having this clean white space kind of goes against the way that we've transitioned into the past before. I feel like considering it is a family tree, you have a more natural aesthetic that you could approach with that. Um, but that that's a minor gripe. I, th- I think that that finale is really great. It's creatively thrilling. Like the lost and found guy and his papery folded look is so strange, but... I think it, it totally works. Every time that he breaks the style in the film, whether it's here or whether it's when the mum turns into a hag, even though it is vastly different to everything that we've seen before, it manages to stay inside the world somehow as well um, without feeling like it's coming from a different film. And it like this, this is it's really exciting. And I love that the the actual end of the film doesn't happen here. It happens back to the house, back to such a small location and such a small gesture like there are these two things that happen just in the last few minutes that i absolutely love and again going back to this um silent filmmaking skill they're just they're just gestures the first one is he makes a tantrum earlier um about wanting to wear yellow shorts not blue shorts and he hates the blue shorts and at the end of the film the yellow shorts get finished in the washing machine and he can put them on to go out but he pulls down his blue shorts and then realizes no i'm a big boy i can wear the blue shorts that i don't want to wear because that will help my family um and that's such a lovely gesture just in his little y fronts (laughs) pulling up his blue shorts like a big boy just amazing and then um the look at the end between him and Mirai is wonderful and it makes me think it's similar to a moment that's near the end of bell that makes me think of the end of Magnolia, the Paul Thomas Anderson film, which is an extremely melodramatic film, uh, like three and a bit hours long. And you go through as they uh, 
say in the film all the p and the s and you have to get through all of this and that's worth it all if you can just get to the end of the film and make someone smile and that you can make that connection and i love that we get through all of this all the past and the future and the dream worlds and the index and all of that but ultimately what we get is this smile from mirai towards her big brother beautiful well could just be because he gave her some banana or she might have done a big poo like <laughs> exactly that could be it it's, it's that simple if this was like a pixar film or something that would be the punchline wouldn't it <laughs> well, if this was boss baby yeah. <laughs> uh, so ending on a big smile jake we should see where Mirai comes in our Hoss order. I think I'll go first this week because I think I'm the most down on this film comparatively between the three of us because this one really does typify that conflict, that tension, um, friction even between some of these di- these different hats that Hossider likes to wear as a filmmaker. This the the big ideas, the small ideas, the observational filmmaking drawn from his own life, but then needing to bring in some big storytelling conceits. I love. I would have loved this if um, there were maybe a fewer characters and they had focus just on the the small moments rather than the big ones. So I think this is definitely mid table for me, um, and but is very much an important step on that journey where he's clearly wrestling with whether to be an observational filmmaker or a allegorical filmmaker. Um, And yeah, even on, on on rewatch watching it now as a father of a three-year-old rather than a, you know, a a prospective father, I found myself much more drawn to the, to the household scenes rather than the, um, the more, um, <laughs> the more high-flying scenes as it comes later on. But Steph, where would you put this in your in your list? This is number one for me. This right. is hands down my favourite. And I'm really, I guess, happy that, yeah, when I first saw it, I was like, this is amazing. And then now I've come back after kind of watching all the rest of Hossida's films and it's still, like, number one. I think it's it's such a good kind of amalgamation of all the best parts of his other films. Um, and I just love like all the background details all those little things that you know I've watched this so many times now and watching it again to do this episode I've like noticed more stuff and it's it's just such a good film that you can come back to again and again just think it's I I really do think it's perfect with yeah so that's my number one (laughs) Jake um I I like this film a lot I was thinking that I was gonna be hugely into it um again but i think i was so i was so high off of the imax screening you know and from what we were doing and kind of getting introduced to anime was probably kind of part of that as well that i i had supremely high expectations on the rewatch that weren't quite matched and probably not helped through the setting of just watching it at home compared to the experience of last time um and so I, I noticed that I, yeah, the flaws in it that I've mentioned, and I noticed that my my emotional attachment wasn't as strong as it had been beforehand, and maybe that's something that will come out through future home rewatches. Um, but I do still think the film is really good. I think it's um, kind of merging the his two approaches to storytelling in not an entirely perfect way, um, but more successfully than he has done before. 
in kind of treating our host order as a hermetically around our viewings for this series so because of the the nice surprise that is summer wars for me like that's still top spot uh but then i'd put mirai just underneath that and then wolf children and then go through time and then boy and the beast at the bottom Mm, well yeah this one's still got so many beautiful moments in it even for me i'm not down on it at all it's just one that um I, i i can't get away from what it could have been in various different forms it makes me think of you know a film we talked about recently Petite Maman mm. uh, makes me think of Hirokazu Kareda's films because Hosoda clearly likes those sorts of films I'd love to make him, see him make a straight ahead slice of life film but yeah without if he had if he went and made a slice of life film after this we wouldn't get Bell which is our final film in the Hosodathon which we can't wait to talk about it's been a long journey from there to here before we go, Michael, can I just propose a theory about why you don't like the film? Oh, go so, on then. This is subconsciously, all right, like the film is transporting you back to when you were a child, when, of course, you were a massive Manchester United fan. <laughs> what? Uh, and the main character of this film is called Kun. And Kun Aguero is uh, the legendary Manchester City striker who's just retired who in 2012 scored the winner that secured Man City's, a.k.a. Man United's rivals, first Premier League title in however many years. Uh, You know, from the Aguero (laughs) moment. And so this film is full of people saying, "Um, Kun is my angel, I love Kun. And you're there thinking, no, I hate him. I hate him because you're united till you die. That's so smooth. (laughs) (laughs) You're getting football chat in just at the last minute. (laughs) Listeners out there, please podcast with football about me. I have no one to talk to. (laughs) Um, Well, gosh. Yes, listeners. (laughs) Please validate Jake's theory there. (laughs) Send us a tweet at Ghibliotech on Twitter. Find us on Instagram, ghibliatech.pod, or email us ghibli at little.studios.com. Of course, we end each mini-series with a mailbag, and we'd love to hear your thoughts and theories about all things Hosoda. So please do send us some messages, and we'll read them out in our mailbag episode in two, no, in three episodes' time. But next week, we'll be talking about Hosoda's latest film, Bell, which is in UK cinemas, 4th of February, already out in the States. So you've probably seen it out there if you're in the United States. But until then, you can follow us all individually on social media as well. You can follow Steph at underscore Steph Watts. You can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. And you can follow Michael at Michael J. Leader. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is by Anthony Ng, and the show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. Hi everyone, thanks for sticking through the credits. Now the original Japanese and the English dub versions of Mirai are slightly different, especially with Yuko the dog. He gets a slightly different ending in the English dub. So at the end of the film, when mum and dad are talking about whether they're good parents, 
in the original Japanese, Yuko just simply responds, oh, please. Uh, whereas in the English dub, Yuko feels the need to join in and contentedly mutters to himself, and I am a good dog. So let us know which version you think best fits Yuko the dog's character. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.